Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Media Res founder Michael Ellenberg and International Chief Lars Blomgren about the morning show and pachinko makers' approach to developing hit global dramas. Writers Dana Fainaru and Hamish Wright on adapting Israeli comedy Significant Other for British streamer ITVX. And BBC Studios' Mark Lindsay, CAA's Ted Miller, The Gotham Group's Ellen Goldsmith-Vane and Game Changer Films' F.E.T. Brown on the US writers' strike. One time, HBO drama chief Michael Ellenberg launched his own production company, Media Res, six years ago, going on to make acclaimed series including Apple TV Plus dramas The Morning Show and Pachinko, scenes from a marriage for his former employer, and new Boots Riley comedy I'm a Virgo for Amazon. Ellenberg brought Banerjee scripted chief Lars Blomgren on board at the end of last year as head of international, and the pair spoke to Dynamic Television president of global scripted TV Carrie Stein at C21's Content LA recently about their approach to developing series for the global market and future plans for the business. All right, we have two very special guests here, Lars and Michael. Let's start at the beginning. Michael, um, Media Res is how old a company? Six years? Six years. Six years. And uh, just for the benefit... It's like discounted by the pandemic, I feel like. So it's, so it's two years. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so just a young startup. And now I know the answer, but for those who don't, where does the name Media Res come from? It's slightly pretentious. Uh, and medias res is a literary term, a Latin literary term, for stories that start in the middle of the action. So I'm sure many people here have given the note, which is like, can we skip the exposition, just get into it. Um, and, but it's also a moniker for the kinds of stories we're drawn to. It's a storytelling style that assumes the audience is smart, that wants to be challenged, that, enjoy, that enjoys catching up rather than being spoon-fed. So it's a bit more lean in than lean back. Um, certainly reflects the kind of programming. Uh, and it's, it's a writerly term as well. So yeah, anyway, we, we like it. I like it. I was trying to figure it out and I figured I better just ask. Um, when you started the company, so you had been an executive for years. What was your mission or desire when you started your own company? Um, there's personal things to it. I'll speak on the business side first, which was kind of simple insight. I came up as a film producer and uh, was fortunate to go to HBO and oversee drama series there in a very exciting creative time. And, you know, this space, you know, we're in another kind of industry shift moment. Um, but from, let's say, from my vantage, I think from Laura's vantage, you know, compared to like eight years ago, you know, the space, whatever's happening now, it's still way the hell bigger than it was then. And for HBO, there were no companies, there were companies that could sell to us, of course, we bought shows, but there was almost, there was like really no one we felt could like deliver a show for us, right? And so the simple impulse was basically to build a company that I wished was on the other end of the phone when I was there, knowing that we were entering an era of volume. It'd be very hard for the new players, brilliant people at them, but they're making so much, um, everyone's volume. And so to provide creators the same boutique experience that HBO gives, um, but also give a kind of best-in-class experience to the buyers as well, because they're also your client, right? And I thought there was a unique opportunity in the market at that time. And yeah, and so far, so good. Yeah. Um, is Media Res just a TV company, or you do TV and film? We do some film, and I think we'll look to do more of it. Uh, you know, we want to get our sea legs. Uh, we did a small movie with Lena Waithe. 
a couple years ago that we're really proud of and have a couple of really great films actually on the docket for next year. So yes, it's a part of our lives and we think we'll be doing a bit more of it. And certainly the DNA of the company is, you know, we want to make cinematic television, right? So it's good to stay close to the real thing um, and make the movies as well. We certainly work with a lot of top filmmakers both here and abroad. The Morning Show was your first show out of the gate, right? Yes. And it's in its fourth season? Yes, we'll just... It will be uh, once uh, once there's a resolution to the strike. But yes, uh, it's it's we're in post. We're we're finishing season. We're delivering season three right now. Congrats! That's, that's a great show. Thank you. Um, so where did the two of you meet? Go ahead. You're on, Lars. <laughs> well, it's a nice story in a way. It is. I mean, we. It's I, romantic. Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. It has to do with a marriage. It's like a Cannes. conference like yeah. this. Yes. It's a sunny day in Cannes. No, no, I. I'd been working with Hagai Levy for like five years, getting, trying to get scenes from marriage off the ground. Then suddenly we had some traction and we realized we needed an American partner. And we were introduced to you and it was love at first sight. And then we did the show. It was a strange experience for me because I couldn't get into the US because Literally, of the yeah. pandemic. But it was a lovely experience and then we were mates. So, okay, so Scenes from a Marriage is a sw- originally a Swedish miniseries. You got the rights, correct? Yes. It's a, Ingmar Bergman did it in the, yeah. in the 70s. I acquired the rights uh, and the passion of a guy, which was important. And was your intention always to bring it into the U.S. market? Yes. And so are you saying that the introduction to Michael is what helped you get it into the U.S. market? Because you were based in Sweden. You are based in Sweden. Yes, I mean, I mean, I think both Hagai and, uh, and Rick Rosen was an important part of this as well. We all agreed that we, in order to work in the U.S., you need the U.S. partner, and Michael was the obvious choice. So. Yeah, in a way, I think the experience of that um, both obviously formed a relationship between us, uh, which is most important in terms of building a partnership, but I think as a model, and what seemed like an exciting... The experience of it, I think, proved the opportunity in the market, which was what we saw, you know, is there are obviously brilliant companies here. There are brilliant companies abroad. Fantastic. Many of them are here. Um, But we thought it'd be a unique opportunity where you can get a world-class experience out of Europe, you know, obviously in Lars's case, um, but also have a great advocate in LA. And if the show, that was a show that ended up being an American show in the end, right? So the DNA is, is Swedish, filmmakers Israeli, um, but it's set in America. Um, and so it ends up being based here. So sometimes that will happen organically, meaning the shows that you'll partner on, will, you know, they'll, they'll truly come to America. But I think just as often there'll be opportunities where you'll either need American cast, American talent, American budgets, whatever it is, and so finding the right collaboration uh, where the creatives feel you haven't entered 12 new voices, right? We're in sync, so you get that kind of intimate support, um, but you get effective advocacy in both your local territory and here in America. So it really was that experience of working together that made you decide to bring Laura's into the company. It was proof of concept, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting, and Laura's, I just... For the record, Lars is probably the first person, one of the first people I met when I started pursuing global TV, like, I don't know, how many years ago, 10, 12 years ago, long time ago. Um, and I would say that 
you're, I mean, you're a ringleader as a European producer. I mean, not only in making The Bridge, which successfully was adapted multiple times, but then in running Banaget. I mean, you have had the full-on global experience, both as a producer and as an executive. And so now you're working for a U.S. slash global company. That's a big, that's a big shift. What's the appeal of that for you? And, and do you see it as just a different opportunity, a better opportunity, both? Well, I think that for me, the, the, the shine and the moonshine Banerjee experience was a good one in many ways. And I really appreciated getting to know so many different cultures and territories and ways of working. But the thing with this company and the working the way we did, this is like Formula One. It's the, like the best creative team on the planet. And, and of course, I want to get back to that. So. Right, back to your roots as a producer. Yeah, but that's, that's the other thing. I mean, I've been handling other people's, other producers' passions for a long time. And now I just want to get back, get closer to production and in, initiate project that I'm passionate about. I think it's interesting, like Michael, the way you talked about starting Media Res and looking for a certain kind of company that you didn't think was out there when you were at HBO. Um, we were talking earlier about the differences between producers in the U.S. and in Europe, because there's a different um, sort of cultural connection. How do you both think about that, or how have you noticed differences in how each of you work? That's new, but I'll say the... You know, there used to be, this goes, I won't go into a dorkish examination of American regu regulation, you know, FinSec rules, but the television companies in America used to be more like the European companies, um, Carsey Warner, companies like from that era, um, and then they went away mostly because those rules changes. And so when I would go to Europe at HBO, and you'd sit with these production, you know, not just in London, but, you know, we, we worked with Lorenzo Maielli on Young Pope, these incredible companies. And my, to be honest, they were a giant inspiration for starting this. Because I thought, oh, there's not the similar kinds of entities in LA anymore. Um, in part because the premium space had been so small, but there were a bunch of structural reasons for that. So, so in a way, you know, the company's DNA, while it's literally Los Angeles in America, the inspiration was as much for these European companies, frankly. Um, there's certainly, you know, pace and um, to life here versus there. Uh, but there are certain aspects in which our process, I'm sure people in this room can speak better to it, frankly, than us. The LA process... While you know uh, the fire, when the fire hose was you know fully released, the, you know everything had accelerated here. Things are slowing down here, so there are aspects in which right now the pace abroad can be faster, frankly. So, so I don't know that there's such a the, the I don't know that it breaks down such predictable lines between the difference between America, American and European sensibility right now. Obviously, there are profound cultural differences, but. Yeah. My impression. Well, I mean, the, the other difference, of course, is that the the productions are much smaller in the other territories. So there's uh, the, the production will the producer will join on day one and cling on to the project like to the bitter end. And here's just a different way of setting up projects and hiring people to do the day-to-day -day work. Yeah, and, and partially this is bridging the gap where projects abroad are getting bigger, right? And so um, obviously the expertise locally will develop to do bigger things, but by and large, the local territories, just because the primary thing will be lower budgeted, um, uh, we certainly see an opportunity. The shows that we're drawn to for this, for Media Res, are um, you know uh, not to do local for local, right? But to do, let's say, international shows. They have to work in a local territory, otherwise, you're no one's trying to get back to Euro pudding. Um, 
but shows that by their nature, either the concept, the actors, the IP, the filmmaker, whatever it is, the story has some, some ability to go beyond the local territory. You know, Pachinko, uh, we've been interested in international from the beginning. So Pachinko obviously is a great book. We were inspired by it. We start always from a simple place, like would we watch it? Um, but then part of the way to get that sold here in America was this, is, this show can over-index not just in Korea, Japan, uh, with Asian Americans in the U.S. and then just premium audiences in the U.S. and the rest of the world is gravy. That was essential to the pitch and sell. And so, and we believe there are a lot more projects like that out there than audiences have seen yet. So it doesn't mean everything will be pachinko, but you know, finding, finding an angle from the beginning where you can see a reach beyond the local territory. Had that show, that said, success in Korea, if you didn't succeed there, then you failed, right? So it's essential to work locally. Um, you just want to give yourself the chance that if it's good, that it can travel beyond it. Was Pachinko hard to sell initially? I think I didn't appreciate that it was hard to sell. I mean, we had a multi-network rabid bidding war for it. So um, that said, no one was buying I guess no, it wasn't hard. <laughs> but no one was trying to buy the book either. So I, we saw an opportunity in it that I think others didn't. And then when, you know, the way we like to work, we'll do a larger presentation when we go to market. And then that was cool. I mean, what's still, I think, great, even it's a stressful time. Um, but when you really go in and you, and you offer... when. If you call the buyers and say, I have another crime procedural, they will take the meeting in a month. But if you call and say, I got this weird thing that's in like Japanese and Korean and no one's done before, like they may be nervous, but they're excited to hear from you. I, you know, so a lot of what we try to do is like appreciate how bored the buyers are and stimulate them. <laughs> and, and, um, and, if you, and, and they're great. And, you know, so it was, and, and Sue Hugh, the creator, she's incredible and gave a pretty amazing presentation. And when you saw the vision she had, it was a vision, it was, you know, you could see a, we like to come out and you could really see what the show was and people were excited by it. Well, that probably wouldn't have happened five years ago, right? I mean, this, that's a new reality of our business that we're open to these we, kinds of stories. We were, it wasn't five years ago when we sold it, but we were ahead of the curve. This was pre-Parasite, Crazy Rituations, before Squid Game, before all that. The sell at the time was, this is a premium K-drama, meaning uh, you could access a K-drama audience around the world and put a kind of premium show on top of it. And that was kind of the business sell of it. And part of the reason Min Ho Lee was cast, who's incredible and took incredible personal creative risk. He hadn't auditioned since the beginning of his career. He fought desperately for it. So he's awesome in the role of Hansu. Um, Apple, if they're here, they're, they're stingy with viewership numbers. But what you do guess, but they'll share kind of general trends. And so the show has little outcroppings of viewers all around the world, basically wherever he over-indexes. So we were very deliberate about that as well. That was, that was, so Apple at least was excited by that at the time, yeah, but a number of networks were. How important is IP in terms of building your slate? Well, it's extremely important, of course. And for us, I mean, there's two ways to it. If sometimes I'm, I'm looking at lots of local IPs now, and sometimes the IP in itself is good enough to sell it. But it's also at times, that we've been in situations, if you have a specific book that is big enough to attract all the best local directors or storytellers, so you can actually, I mean, we have a situation now with a book that is totally unknown over here, but it attracted all the Nordic guys with any kind of pedigree over here. So we're kind of attracting the talent with the IP and we're selling the project based on the talent, which is a 
match made in heaven, of course. And then how do you decide, you know, obviously all of the streamers now have local offices. How do you decide what door to walk in? You know, you could go to, you know, HBO, Amazon, Netflix, and the Nordics in Germany, Italy, Spain, or you can come here. So how do you guys figure that out? That's the, it's a big, I mean, the entry point is extremely important. And especially now, because everyone, the, the streamers, the local offices of the streamers gone way much better. So the, the bosses or the higher ranked people, they trust the local guys. And if you bypass them, you will insult local guys. So that's, but that's the, so basically you should go, the best entry point is to go to the people in that area. But then you will end up with a way too small budget. We do, if we want to do something that is slightly elevated, bigger, then it doesn't work because now the message from all the streamers is that it's local for local, not local for global. And we have several conversations with several streamers about how to bypass this system without Part, insulting anyone. And this, that's what this partnership allows for, right? So Lars can be talking simultaneously to London, Amsterdam, Rome, whatever, while we're also talking to LA and that's transparent and good and can figure out. And as the streamers themselves, I think, are getting more comfortable in this, sometimes they'll hear it simultaneously. But it's an informed, we're not guessing. Lars brings a scale of expertise around the local buyers that's transformative for us because otherwise we're just guessing, you know? And I was a buyer. Like, yeah, you don't, no one likes when, when they go around you. But it's kind of, well, I don't know if exciting is the right. I mean, the business is interesting, like someone said this morning. But right now, the, the co-production model is coming back because no one wants to buy more than they actually need. And that creates a new opportunity between the US and the UK or between even... I talk a lot with German guys that want to co-produce with, with the US and the UK. So it's, it's an interesting time to be in. Yeah, for sure. I, and I guess the, the big question is looking at the material, figuring out how you're going to package it, and then that will determine where you start and how you build it. And uh, Michael, I'm really impressed by the work you've been doing, that it's high quality, high concept, and still commercial. And I think right now that's, the, the, that's what the buyers want. Yeah, but in the era of 500 shows, you have to stand out, right? Or without whatever the number is. Like, it's too much, right? Or I shouldn't say it's too much. It's just right. Um, but um, the company's philosophy is if you want to do good work, you need to understand the market better, frankly, than others, right? So, so we're not looking. We want to be the answer to the buyer's needs. But we also want to have shows that inspire us, inspire the creatives. And we do start from a simple, like the simplest premise. I know it seems like obvious, but historically it's not, which is would we click on it first? Would the people in this room would our interns you know like you want to start from a place that if the people in these offices are passionate about the show the odds are there's a giant audience out there right you know because what a middle-aged white guy and the young diverse assistant share which is we're all hard to please so if you're pleasing all of us it's most most you have to be aware when you have obscure taste which i occasionally do <laughs> but um when people are feeling that gut that's the thing to you know we do sort of start from a basic place of trust that do you think that that you have to spend, you know, five, ten million dollars an episode for a show to be a breakout global hit? Like I keep thinking of the the financial. Well, Squid Game wasn't right. I mean, What'd you say? I mean, Squid Game wasn't so. Right. Yeah. I mean, it probably will be now, but yeah. <laughs> but the problem is always to identify the shows that are just good, like normal people. Like it's just a good show. It's an amazing show. And I don't think that. I mean, we did the bridge back in the day, and that was not an expensive show, but it traveled anyway. So it's just a matter of understanding the context. Right. Yeah, I think I don't think there's such. I think the assumption that the streamers have made is largely correct, which is if you want to guarantee it, 
Yeah, like in, in, over the top production values, ginormous IP is uh, a, that works. So no one's going to deny that works. But you do, you know, quality still over indexes. And Squid Game is something where had the show been okay, the premise was kind of enough that would get people watching, right? Um, it's a high concept show, so so I think you do need to pay attention to those trend lines. The bridge, while proceed, you know, yes, it's a procedural, but it's a very high concept procedural, and so you do need to pay attention to think when you're thinking about what can really move in this kind of television that we're discussing. There, there, there are markers even at lower budget, but yeah, and then you know, excellence is the unknown. So if you're if you're going for that. Yeah, you know, we like to feel like everything we aim to do is commercial and art. That way, failure looks like it's only commercial or it's only art. Because if it's neither, you're like, right. it'll happen to us all. But you know, uh, we have a question, and please feel free to submit any other questions. Are there plans to roll out the morning show as a format in other territories? Seems to be infinitely adaptable. It's a good question. I'll, I'll just say it's a good question. <laughs> Okay, guess we're not getting an answer on that one. Um, Lars, how are you finding working in the U.S. market? Well, it's another planet. Uh, I, my conclusion anyway, I, I mean, there's no way you can bypass the American system. You have to accept it and you have to love it and embrace it. And, and of course, it's different with the power of the agents and management and so forth. And it's just, it's, a, it's bigger shows, there's more risks. Uh, the buyers want to protect their IP, more, their projects more. And it's just... You just have to get used to it and find a good partner can help you navigate. I think that's it. And Michael, do you are you familiar with the European market? I mean, obviously you travel and you've made big shows and, and met lots of people, but in terms of navigating the market that Lars comes from, no, that's I, Lars. That's Lars's expertise. I mean, I, at maybe the highest, like the highest levels, both when I was a buyer and now as a seller. Um, but no, no. So yeah, you get these speed dating at, at certain conferences you'll go to. So I, yeah, I, I might have a familiarity with some of the key players. But in terms of what they think about and worry about day to day, um, no, that's. I mean, that's Lars' expertise, and I think that's the shared. I think what our shared DNA, which is both come first as producers, then had an executive life, and now are looking to kind of you know me. Res is kind of bringing the kind of studio and network expertise, you know, to bear in support of great creators and actually in support of the networks themselves. So, and I think both of us have a humility of if you don't know what they're thinking about the commissioners and the people on the ground, you're lost. And when there's a, you know, it will in the beginning it's all good, but there will be multiple moments in which it can all die. And if you don't know what they're thinking about and have their interests at heart genuinely, you you can't succeed and you shouldn't succeed to be honest. Um, and so that's what we're not looking from an American perspective, we're not looking, you know, it's like we're coming with the humility of unless it's someone with Lars pedigree and expertise and knowledge, we'd be, you know, it'd be insulting, frankly, to local, local partners to say, come work with us. But one thing that I find really interesting with the U.S. that, that I find a lot of the really creative, maybe difficult and challenging directors in, in Europe or rest of the world, guys like Michael can actually harbor that kind of creativity. You can put them in this, it's a system that can handle strong directors and give them a place. And I think that's, uh, I've seen like, I don't know, like Ali Abassi or Johan Renk or Jacob Fibrigins, like it's possible. And it's, sometimes it's even easier for them to work over here than working on a small body at home. I'm curious about um, your company culture creatively. It's not a, 
a, a question that that people typically think about. But you know, you both have very strong producerial backgrounds, and so I guess I'm wondering. I always think of the U.S. market as you know a lot of submissions come in, book scouts, agents. Whereas in Europe, as a producer, you're spending a lot of time coming up with ideas, meeting with writers. It's just a different sort of creative um, process. So I'm curious if you see a difference between how you both work or what your company culture is creatively on the U.S. side? It's a good question. I mean, yes to basically everything you described. I mean, it's so like we do every, I don't know, you're, you know, like everyone in this room can relate to. Like, I don't know, you know, chasing a good original idea is hard. So you do everything. You read as many books as possible and you watch as much interesting film and TV and you go to the theater. Um, so I think it's a blend. You know, we, we're, we're there's, there's an incoming submission world. We're fortunate now to have enough stature for that but we're chasing you know and you're and you're looking for worlds we focus a lot on white spaces right so if you're trying to find things that are different that's inherent and essential to our business model you're always waiting for that you know magical script to land on your desk and you're like let's go sell this you know and i'm i'm sure it will happen one day so the upshot is we're, we're pretty rigorous. We, t we talk, it's a bit Socratic. And then when we all feel it, you, you go for it, you know? And some of it's just gut. Some of it's about packaging ability. And, and then we always do think, and then we have a checklist of things we think about in terms of market viability. And if it, does, if, if it doesn't fit that, you know, then we do, we do let go, you know? Uh, but I think in terms of your, I don't know, yeah. Talk, we, you, you better, if you don't come up with some original ideas, it's pretty tough, you know? So, um, so I think it's fairly similar. The main difference in Europe is it's not as agent the agents, they're great agents out of Europe, of course, but it's not as, they don't dominate the system in the same way, you know? You don't, I mean, the number of submissions, of course, is way much higher here, and then you have to handle it somehow, and, and, but I think that over here, I mean, a lot about, it's a lot about personal relations and conversations with creative people and about IP and matchmaking, just like everywhere else. Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a mysterious uh, craft uh, uh, to get to it. And we have a very specific focus. So I think there's a, there's a range of, of really good things out there that just not our expertise. So that does allow us to at least, you know, um, you know focus on at least what we perceive to be premium, you know. You have a new show coming out on Amazon. Are we allowed we to do. talk about yeah, we that? Yeah, it comes out. Please do. Okay, what, uh, what comes, is it? It <laughs> uh, comes out in a few weeks. Uh, it's called I'm a Virgo. Um, it's uh, created and directed by Boots Riley, visionary filmmaker who uh, directed, wrote and directed the film Sorry to Bother You, which came out, I think, I don't know, five years ago now. I fell in love with that film. The whole company did. Um, signed him to a development deal after Sundance that year. And the first idea he brought us was the show, which uh, is about a 13-foot-tall giant uh, who leaves his birthday on or leaves his house, excuse me, for the first time around his 19th birthday in Oakland and begins a kind of both a coming of age journey, story of liberating Oakland from kind of fascist capitalist oppression, many other things. It's, you know, it's a bit indescribable. It's actually truly original. Boots is a real visionary filmmaker and I think, uh, I think the show's, uh, show's really special. What's really interesting also, it's handmade, you know, so meaning uh, there is CG in it, there's, but it's mostly practical visual effects. And, you know, to even make it, we end up having talked to a lot of people who worked on the original Star Wars because it's kind of a lost craft actually had to do it this way. And so the show wasn't cheap, but it wasn't as expensive as people will think it is. And it turns out actually it's not cheaper particularly to do this with CG. So, um, uh, but it's a very personal story to him. And um, yeah, that's our first, it's very unconventional, but it's our first, it's another innovation for us. It's both auteur television, he directed them all. It's also our first comedy and um, we're hoping to do more comedy.
Very cool. We have a couple of questions and we're out of time, so I'm going to go fast. Um, other than Korea, are there any emerging territories that you have your eye on where they seem to be over-indexing by creating a lot of IP which can be formatted? Well, for me, I mean, I think we have to have like an opportunistic view on like finding the right projects. But of course, I'm Scandinavian, so I think we will have a few. We already have, it's too early to talk about but we have a few really good developments there. We're talking about projects in Japan, in the UK, in France, in Germany. So. And Mexico as well. I mean, so uh, we're, we're so. all over. Yeah. Okay. Lars, in terms of co-producer relationships, how do you find co-producing with an American producer differs from a traditional European or UK co-production? <laughs> that was a big question. I guess the answer is case by case. The difference in Europe that you probably, most of the times, like on the bridge, you have like seven different partners, which creates a situation where the, the producer has got more power because you can play the one, play the, the different partners against each other. But in with the US, US and the UK, and then it's more in an established relation and it's, uh, it's, it works. It's not a big problem at all. No, and it's case by case. Okay, guys, thank you. Thanks, thank everyone. You. Significant Other is an award-winning Israeli comedy series from Yes Studios revolving around two neighbours, a man and a woman, who meet as the first is committing suicide and the second is in the midst of a heart attack. As both are rushed to hospital, an unlikely romance begins to blossom. ITV Studios' own Key Street Productions secured format rights and the UK version launches this week on sister streaming service ITVX starring Catherine Parkinson and Youssef Kirkor. Writers Dana Finaru and Hamish Wright spoke to Michael Picard about adapting the series for British audiences, their writing partnership and feelings about the US writers' strike. Thank you so much for joining us. I mean, maybe you can just give us an introduction to the story of, of Significant Other and, and tell us a bit about um, who we're going to meet and what they might be getting themselves into. Okay, so in a nutshell, it's a very, very unromantic, romantic comedy. And it starts with, you know, our protagonist, Sam, taking an overdose of pill with the intention of ending his life. And just as he's kind of like nice and settled in his bed, you know, about to take his like, you know, last sleep, and the doorbell goes and the next door neighbor, Anna, is basically behind the door, completely panicking because she's having a heart attack and she's been told by the ambulance people that she can't be on her own until they come. So he has to let her in. And basically, you know, here's one person who's trying to end their own life, another person who's absolutely freaked out because they might die. And the story kind of basically rolls on from there. It's basically these two people who have really given up on love in many ways, but circumstances kind of push them together. And it's about the relationship that kind of evolves from then on and the fact that although they are completely incompatible in every possible way, there's this little bit of magic which is completely subterranean that they share, which brings them together and keeps bringing them together despite all odds. I think that's it in a nutshell. Hamish, have you got anything to add? No, beautifully put. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <Was> that <laughs> that's how you why we work together. <laughs>
Fantastic. And I mean, yeah, so I was lucky enough to to spend a day on set up in Manchester towards the end of the shoot in October. And as you said there, the pervading sense I got from the cast and, and Hamish when I when I spoke to him there as well was that this is a very unromantic romantic comedy. This isn't Richard Curtis. This is um it's a an anti-rom-com, a sad com. I mean, how how would you just describe that kind of subgenre that you've had to kind of dive into and I guess bring these two people together, but also it's um it's a very heartfelt, very touching story of these two people who are are obviously going through very troubled times, as you sort of said at the outset. They've both got health issues of of mental or physical differences and 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 yet they sort of find themselves drawn to each other. So I mean, yeah, tell us a bit about just take us further into that and and how you've managed to put that on the screen. Uh so we we um when we first kind of pitched this to Nicola Schindler, it was around January 2021. So we were kind of in the thick of the pandemic, but we were thinking about what comes after, you know, what comes after when we've all shut out ourselves away and start opening our doors and seeing who might be next door, who's the person, who's who's also been feeling lonely, who's kind of gradually opening themselves up to the world. And we felt like the the premise of this show kind of lent itself to, to that feeling kind of perfectly. And it, it, I think you're right. Like it, it's it's not sentimental at all. And that's what we wanted to avoid. We wanted to kind of give it the feeling of a show about younger people, you know, like a show that has kind of uncertainty and tension in kind of putting yourself out there. The kind of thing that you would see in a kind of show about 20-somethings or 30-somethings, because in truth, when you're at any age when you're putting yourself out there it's wonderful and uncertain and that's what we really wanted to explore with this and and i think you know what hamish says is right i mean because the character might be in their late 40s but they got stuck somewhere along the way so you know with sam you've got somebody somebody who's a real kind of man child so he's extremely immature you know and with anna you've got somebody who barricaded herself you know it at quite an early age. So they both feel, you know, like teenagers, which I think is is quite common for people our age. You know, we're kind of getting older, but we feel really, really more and more clueless with age. And we just kind of wanted to tap into that feeling that I think we kind of all recognize, you know, that kind of awkward, helpless, oh, it's really exciting, but fuck, I don't know what I'm doing at all, feeling. And the thing is that despite the show having a lot of gallows humor, I mean, it does actually make the point that you never know what's around the corner. And in that, it's it's very hopeful because it basically says, you know, something can just happen out of nowhere and your life will completely change and you'll find yourself doing things that you've never done before and it's finding that kind of chink really in in the armor which could lead to really weird and wonderful things and I think that's quite kind of like typical of Hamish and mine work because we're just kind of both hopeless romantics so you know despite treating everything with a lot of black humor we're kind of big softies and I think that's kind of reflected in the show, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, it is, it is a very funny show, though. I mean, where, where would you say you have drawn that humour from? Because, yeah, it's, it's not full of one-liners or things like that. It's, it's, it's 
I, I would say it's not even things they say, it's just the, the situations that they kind of find themselves in and just being together, they seem to <laughs> find themselves just in, in ridiculous circumstances that, that and I would say that is where, where the humour comes from. I don't know if you would agree or, or not. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. It, neither of us are, are kind of gag writers and nothing against that. Absolutely kudos to, to people who can do that. That's kind of not our not our skill set. It's very much a situation, you're right. Like in episode one, it's almost the the kind of most wonderful dark meat cute of all time. You know, like he's committing suicide, she's having a heart attack. You know, you cannot fail but get like laughter and interesting moments out of something like that. And it kind of follows in future episodes as well. And also together we've got enough, we've got a huge arsenal of humiliating experiences <laughs> that we can draw, you know, on. So, you know, that kind of, in a sense, unlucky and lucky in love, you know, we've just drawn on a lot of stuff that we've been through, really. Yeah. I mean, I I was going to say the show is based on an Israeli format, but it sounds as though there's as much of your own life experience in the show than than there is what you've taken from the original format. (laughs) Um, I think it's just the characters in the original format are very different characters, you know, because the Israeli version... I mean, I love it and I think it's incredible, don't get me wrong, but it's quite harsh, you know, and the characters are much more barricaded and, you know, they they definitely are less likable. And the thing is that once you start changing the characters, you also start changing what the characters do, you know, because one person would do one thing and another would do a completely different thing. So in that, we it just went through a really, really big transition where, yes, we had to basically draw on, you know, think about things that would happen in this country and they wouldn't necessarily happen in Israel, you know, common experiences, you know, how the dating scene works here. It doesn't work that way there. So we had to kind of reinvent it in in lots of different ways. And I think we were very inspired by the tone of the Israeli show which was very kind of like uncompromising. So we we really wanted to preserve that, but obviously we had to we had to kind of change quite a lot of it. Yeah. I guess a question I always like to ask people about remakes is the fact that there are remakes at all in this in this age where we're all we're all watching foreign language drama and, and subtitles are no longer the, the barrier I guess they once were. I mean, where do you both see the virtue in remaking an Israeli series in this instance? And and what does bringing it to a British mindset perhaps, you know, do to the story? Or, or you know, will we want to watch both? Or, or what's the value, do you think, of, of remakes today? Well, I guess there's a specific answer to that and a more general answer. The specific answer as it pertains to Significant Other is that I know when I watched the show, and Dana had watched it many months before me because she'd watched it in the original Hebrew. I had to wait till there was a subtitle version. Obviously, I, I loved it as well. And I felt that I couldn't see a show like that on British TV, but I, I felt like there would be an appetite for it. So that's kind of what kind of motivated, I think, us to to kind of push it forwards. I mean, in a in a kind of a commissioning sense, I think it helped that there was there was a proof of concept there for the commissioner Nana that she could kind of say, okay, so I can see how this would work, and that kind of I think strengthened our hand. Dana, did you do you have anything to add to that? I mean, I would just say that some things are rife for a remake because there's a lot in them that would need to change 
for them to strike a chord in a particular place. So like when I watched the Israeli original, I kind of thought, oh my God, this would really not work here because people would just not get where these two people are coming from. But for example, if you're looking at something like Fauda, there would be no point in adapting that because it is about that particular you know, situation politically, socially. So you'd have to stick with all that. Whereas with significant other, it's a very kind of universal situation. But the way that you explore it is everything. Do you see what I mean? It's like the situation, the the the, the parting shot is the same, but then how you explore it makes a completely different show, really. So I, I would say that that's what I would be looking at in terms of what's good to adapt and what isn't. And so, I mean, in terms of your own sort of writing partnership, I gather you met uh, a few years ago now on Casualty, is that right? And we um, did. And you sort yeah, of yeah. did it off and, and thought, you know, you'd build a partnership together. I mean, what was that? What's that process been like for you both? And and how do you write together, whether it's in the room or, or on Zoom now? Um, you know, what's that process be like? It's been terrible. Um, I hate him. <laughs> <laughs> we've, he winds me up. <laughs> we've never lived in the same place, actually. So it's <laughs> it's been a partnership that is very much like digital, you know, like it's on Zoom, text, email. And it's, I guess, uh, obviously, I'm I'm Australian by descent and Dana's Israeli by descent. We've, we've both lived in the UK for ages, but Australia and Israeli TV has a kind of commonality of tone that I think we've brought to Significant Other. And I think it's certainly something that bonded us early on, a kind of taste for, for that kind of show. That's kind of been something that has been a real kind of common thread of what we've done. I mean, I met Hamish when um, he was my editor on Casualty. And uh, I remember like asking him what he's done before. And then he's told me that he's written and produced on Secret Life of Us, which was you know, like an incredible Australian relationship show that I was like completely hooked on. And it was like, oh my God, that just did it. I was like, <laughs> you know, completely like starstruck, really. And it kind of rolled on from there. I mean, like Hamish says, we have very, very similar tastes. We tend to like the same things and we have very similar sense of humour, you know, and um, our writing has a very, I mean, we have different strengths, but but our tone is quite similar as well. So it kind of just developed organically, but over a very, very long time. It wasn't like an immediate thing. And we've had our fair share of refusals. And yeah. you know, before before we, we found something that kind of, you know, found traction, which is amazing. Yeah. As for actual process, we've we've never written in the room together. We tend to kind of split scripts in into bits and um usually half it half it down the middle and do individual passes, then swap it and overwrite and swap and overwrite. That's kind of how it's worked so far. And I mean, we've never had people come back go, oh, this it seems kind of inconsistent. It's it's usually yeah. pretty pretty kind of one voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 I mean, how would you just describe life as a writer at the moment in in the UK industry? Because obviously, across the pond, all the writers are, are striking in America to kind of avoid, I guess, a freelance kind of system that that we have here so i mean how do you find the way that you work and and the industry is open to to writers 
and how has that sort of worked for you or, or what could be improved perhaps if you look at other uh, industries around the world? Anecdotally, it does feel like there's thunderclouds coming. Yeah. I, I know Dana and I have, have kind of, that's that's kind of the mood music we're hearing from our agents and, and from meetings that we're taking with other people. And I think, you know, um, the WGA strike, I mean, it's absolutely right that it's happening. I mean, and I had to refuse a big job because of it, because I didn't want to, you know, be a, like a picket line breaker. It's kind of depressing because I think that the writers usually are like, you know, the last rung in the ladder. And um, I think across the board, commissioners and companies are very, very risk averse at the minute. And that's what we're both hearing. And that's what makes like the whole experience of, you know, working with Nicola Schindler and, you know, being exec producers and all of that, that that's what makes it so kind of like extraordinary. And, you know, we do hear about other people's experiences on shows that they've created and no way have they been treated with as much kind of like support and respect that that we have but it yeah it it kind of you know it's not looking too encouraging at, at the minute you know and on a in a general sense we just hear about you know development slates being axed and you know, um, that people are finding it much, much, much harder to get anything commissioned. And of course, you know, I think what the American writers are striking about is absolutely right that, you know, with the streamers basically gaining more and more control, what they like to do is just kind of like give you a buyout fee. So they pay for you writing the actual thing, but then you don't get residuals, you don't get a percentage of sales, you just kind of like you sell your work like a commodity and then somebody else will make a a huge profit out of it. So they're absolutely right to strike, especially at the minute when they say that, you know, in 10 years time, we're all going to be, we're all going to be replaced by AI. So, (laughs) you know, it does kind of make you think really (laughs) that thunder you're talking about coming that's just a slowdown in commissioning is it and development and and so what are you guys kind of working on next have you got projects in development or are you looking perhaps to a season two i guess of significant other all of the above all of the above yeah 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 we've got (laughs) a new piece that we've worked up that we're about to put into a, a market that as we say is slowing down but hopefully it will land somewhere and um we are talking with ITV about going again on Significant Other. We've written kind of where it would go and um, writing a script, the first episode. And yeah, it, it's the life of a writer definitely in the UK is that you kind of spread your risk and you've got a number of projects on the go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But hopefully we're also developing another project with another company. So yeah, hopefully we can get to work together, you know, as much as possible, really, because it does, you know, it, it does tend to be easier to share the anxiety and the stress <laughs> with someone else. The US writer's strike has been underway for a month now, a standoff between the union representing those on whose pens scripted TV shows and movies depend and the trade association that protects the interests of the production studios and streamers. 
The topic was much discussed at C21's recent Content LA conference and development market and the focal point of a panel discussion featuring BBC Studios scripted president Mark Lindsay, CAA TV agent Ted Miller, the Gotham Group chief executive Ellen Goldsmith-Vane and Game Changer Films chief executive F.E.T. Brown. The quartet spoke with Quinn media management partner Pat Quinn about the dispute and other issues including representation within the industry and the ways in which the Hollywood system needs to change. My name's Pat Quinn, and I want to welcome you to the C21 State of the Scripted Nation panel. And I'd like to introduce my really cool set of panelists. This is Mark Lindsay from the BBC, Ellen Goldsmith-Vane, who's the head of the Gotham Group, Effie Brown, who has been on really a lot of great TV series and movies, and is really like a lot. It's a long bio. And Ted Miller, who is, has been at CA as long as... I've known him, right? Like 30 years? <laughs> really a long time. But he is a huge advocate for the writers, as I am too, having been a literary agent. We all are. Anyway, um, I sort of wanted to get this all going with telling you what we want to focus on. And we want to focus on what's our direction for a panel? And, you know, everybody knows what's going on outside. And I'm sure you've heard more than you want to know at drinks and coffee, but where are we going with this whole thing? I mean, is anybody telling us? You can send questions on this, but let's say the strike has passed and it's six months from now. Ted, what's going on? We're back in business. Um, you know, I, I, I think, I, I'm, well, I'm always an optimist, so I, I think despite the sort of economic, uh, global economic, you know, things happening now and a lot of companies going through renovation right. and, and fiscal, fiscal issues, I do think everyone will come out of it and there will be great content to, to continue to prosper, scripted content. That's what we're focused on here, and I'm excited about that. I, I got into this business uh, as an agent to represent writers, to hear those voices, to tell those stories, and I, I think there will be more of it. But we, you know, I have done this more than 30 years, and there have been many cycles of content of companies kind of expanding and contracting. And I just think it'll be, um, you know, we'll get back to a place where there's going to be an appetite and, and demand for great content. What about you, Mark? Yeah, no, I'd, um, I'd share that optimism. You know, I, I work for BBC Studios. My job is to bring uh, great British content into this market. You know, we've had a, a really good run recently uh, uh, with. Shows like uh, Doctor Who, uh, uh, Happy Valley is coming, Rain Dogs, Am I Being Unreasonable? You know, the range of content, scripted content, is, is phenomenal. Uh, and I think we should applaud ourselves for what, what we're delivering into the Not market. Not quite yet, darling. Not quite yet. But, we're, but, that, but I mean, all of that gives us hope for the future, yeah. I think. Yeah. You know, and uh, since I've relocated here a couple of months ago, I've been catching up with the content and, you know, from from Wednesday to, to Swarm, to Beef, you know, Yellowstone, Yellow Jackets, it's got yellow in the title, you know, yeah, you're, you're fine. Uh, so it's, you know, there is reason for us to be optimistic. I really feel that. And if you think about the last 10 years, the statistic is that um, content production has, has grown, has doubled, you know, particularly in the last five years. Inevitably, it was going to peak, but it's, you know. Well, you know, you know John Langrath keeps saying, the end of peak television is nigh, right? He keeps saying that. And he always has this incredible research from FX. But then it peaks again. I mean it. 
thinks again. Well, it ebbs and flows, doesn't it? You know, so, so you know, I do, I'm with you. I think it, it will drop, you know, I think inevitably. I think as we, as, as the market consolidates, as we consolidate costs, yep. you know, the cost of production is going through the roof and we need to, we need as a community to address that. Um, and, and yes, I think it will climb back up again. Hey, Effie, what do you think? So <laughs> let's say it's a year from now. A year? A year or six months. Pick whichever one you want. So I'm gonna what go would with you the be year. your vision of where we're all going with this and what it would be like? Here's what I think, and I, maybe I'll answer this question a little bit of a, in a different way. I think we're in a time of a great reckoning that is happening. And I'm not talking about the strike. Before the strike, we were still in yeah. that reckoning where there was going to be, we're talking about access to resources. We're talking about access to opportunity. And I think that in the, what's going to continue to happen, because just sort of echoing what these two were saying, that businesses are consolidating, everyone is streamlining. I think when I say a reckoning of being those folks that have been at the top of the pyramid as producers who have been making a mill, whatever, you know what I mean? Their fees are big, you know what I mean? It's now being, um, I'm gonna call it, I'm gonna say right-sized, but it's, it's being challenged now. Um, and I think that that is going to continue to happen. And, um, and I always say, like, I came up from independent. I have a financing, production, and development company now. But I feel like I've seen, like, a bit of all of the sides. Do you know what I'm saying? Not that I'm by any chance. I'm like, I'm done. You know, but, like, but like I've been there. Like, I've been on the team of, like, oh, I need a job. And then something of being, like, where are we going to put money, you know, money towards. Um, anyway, so I just feel that there's the reckoning and what could be the result of that reckoning will be there will be more access, and, but it'll be a, for a different, um, I think, folks that know how to be a little bit, um, not multi, what do you, um, like, I'm going to say multi-time, but someone who actually knows how to make something happen. Yeah, you know what great. I mean? But like a real, I'm not just, and I'm talking about producing and like someone who's actually able to execute. I think those days of someone sitting on it at a monitor sort of being a cappuccino producer, I think are, well, I mean, if this, uh, that's what I think is changing. Yeah. Does that it, make sense? It totally makes sense. And I'm like, I'm a little drop, sorry, I'm just gonna be real about it. <laughs> what about you, Alan? I mean, well, first of all, I think. Talk, talk about what your business is so they know what the Gotham Group is. Well, we, um, you, well, obviously we have a, uh, a quorum of optimists here, Pat, so lucky you. Um, and maybe we're just doing that because we want to will things sort of back into production. And, um, you know, I run a company that both represents writers and directors in animation and live action film and television, but we also make a lot of uh, movies and television shows. And, um, you know, I think to the extent that when we look down the road, um, you know, what, what we're doing at Gotham right now is, um, you know, working with our writers to, um, you know, to support them through this time, but also, um, you know, cheering them on um, and wanting to try to get them back to work as quickly as possible. They all want to get back to their shows and, um, and we want to get back to the shows that we've been working on as well. Um, you know, we have, um, you know, I, I think um, nothing but opportunity in the scripted space. And, um, you know, I think John Landgraf is right, but I, I also feel like, you know, we have so many places that we can be selling scripted programming now 
um, you know, it's exciting, it's thrilling, and, um, you know, and, and for us as a company, um, both as producers and representatives, um, you know, it feels like it's all upside. Mark, do you have anything? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. I think there's still, there's going to be opportunity out there. Uh, and, and it is exciting, and I think, you know, we want to, we want a swift conclusion to the, to the writer's strike. Um, and I think everyone in this room values storytelling, you know, and that starts with the written word. So that's really important to our industry. So the sooner it ends, the better. But it has been, the last five years have been incredibly exciting. You know, I mean, I, we find it really gratifying when you're working with a, with a writer who's delivering their, their first television series. You know, if you've got someone like Emma Moran, who who's does um, Extraordinary for Disney+, Plus, you know, it's, it's just phenomenal to be giving her that opportunity, or Cash Carraway, who's written for the first time on um, a show for HBO called Rain Dogs. It's as well as, you know, having Russell T. Davis rebooting Doctor Who with, with Disney. So it's, it, it feels, it has felt exciting, and I don't want to lose that sense of exciting excitement and opportunity for, for creatives. So this whole thing is going on because people want it to be better. They see a vision of it being better, you know, that there could be a business. Um, so what impact will the strike have? Ted? Let's skip past Ted's that. Let's try to sneak I, off the I, stage. It's hard, it's, hard to know that. it's hard to know the answer to that, but I think it will obviously <laughs> hopefully improve conditions, financial and otherwise, for, 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 for writers, which is, you know, really important. These are all also, you know, all challenging issues, but we have to get past it. But, what, but I wanted to go back to what Mark was saying, which was the, um, well, I think there needs to be a balance in this business between taking risks uh, on voices, new, new writers, on, on storytelling. Um, there's always a balance. Ellen, you're in the IP business. Uh, IP has become really essential part of the, the ecosystem. But I think those original voices, I, I, I have nothing to do with it, but I love the show Jury Duty, right, which came out. I think we need, you take chances, which I think this business always did, in, in new voices, in new talent. And you find uh, you find special shows that resonate, and you have those water cooler moments that, and shows that people are talking about. So, I think whether it's peak TV or not, audience, you all people in the in the television audience want to watch great television, whatever that is to them, right? It, and it's and it's different, and we offer a huge variety. But I want to see great television. I want to be inspired by what I watch. I want to I want to represent those voices, and I want to I want to help them get across the finish line. But I do think we have to encourage. Uh, the 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 new allow new voices in the in the ecosystem and the training that goes into teaching them to do this job. But if you look at, you know, we always hear these rhythms that that you know comedy is dead, comedy is challenged. But then you know Quinta Brunson, a relatively new voice, comes on and does Abbott Elementary, right? And then and Jury Duty, the same thing. And then all of a sudden, these are great comedies that will inspire a new generation of comedic storytellers to make great comedies. So I I love those rhythms, and I always when whenever we're down. The surprise, the, the maybe the unexpected shows become the, the hits. I personally would like to be able to say to my students and my protégés and my clients, this is a great business, it's fair. And that I can point to these programs. <laughs> no, I would like to be able to say it. I was it. like, wait, it's fair? What, what business? Okay. No, I'm staying six, 12 months away. Oh, okay. Not it's now. Be, it's going to be equitable. Okay. Not now. Okay. But, but I would like to feel that way and be able to point to that within the business, opportunities that really do exist that aren't, you know, you, were, you and I were talking, Effie, and you're yeah. very cynical about them. You said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not cynical. I think I've been, I'm not to discredit anybody else's experience, but just saying I, I've been in those trenches. I am, I am a woman of color. 
I have always championed those new voices and getting them out. And I love how, and I'm so, and I'm not trying to be a contrarian, but I also don't feel that it's, if someone's asking me to sort of grab a microphone, I'm going to say the truth that I know. And it's not fair. And it's not, you know, but I'm just I'm not trying to be an ass, but I'm just being like, it's not fair. No. And we're, everyone talking about new voices and, you know, all of that. Like, yeah, that's all great. But do you know how hard that was to get? There's like a lonely only. Do you know what I'm saying? And there still is that when I say the new reckoning is that when people are trying to get access to that, when those, do when those folks have been in business for a long time are like, oh, shit, that you now have to make space for others. It's not great. It's not, no one's, it's not like open arms, come on in. That's not the truth. I think that's what we would love for it to be. And in 12 months, that would be amazing. But you know what I mean? But like, I, I am not being cynical, I'm being real. And I would like to, and my, what I'm about and trying to, you know, and collaborating hopefully here is to make real actionable sort of goals and real expectations instead of like, you know, that's just my two cents, sorry. Effie, you're really saying, I don't want to hear about the lip service. I don't. And the programs that aren't real and all of that. Well, I mean, like, and that's for, and this is another thing, and, and I don't, I mean, like, I'm going to lose you guys at some point. You're going to be, like, clapping. You're like, wait, what did she just say? <laughs> I know, I'm like this. I'm like, so just beware. Um, you know, I love, you know, labs and all of that sort of thing, but, and I'm talking about people who are trying to gain access, and it's like, you know what? A lot of people already know how to write. They already know how to do this. They need a job, and they need opportunities. Stop, you know, the labs, are, you know, the people are doing labs, but if you even look at the, the sort of, um, the, like, do they get the job after the lab? Or do they just do the lab, which is sort of lip service sometimes for a studio or for a company to say, like, oh, we did our piece, you know? And that's where, you know, I can talk about how to take that to the next step, because people need a job, they need credit, and they need opportunity. If there's something that leads to that, I'm down. But someone being like, I'm gonna, you know, let's have another mentoring session. You're like, or I'm gonna be in another workshop. <laughs> yeah, another gotta, workshop. And you're like, I've been like, cause if you, I don't know if you guys, maybe you even have been a part of that, but like people have been a part of like several workshops and they're still like, I've been in this program, the ABC program, the this the program, the this the thing, and I still need, well, I mean, you guys represent. I'm not putting you on the spot. Ted's like, right. I can't believe I'm sitting next to her. She real <laughs> He's like, and you know, and, and CAA represents me, but maybe not for long. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ted. Well, I've always, by the way, I've always. So like, note to self, she's fired. I, I agree with you. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to get into the door. There isn't a straightforward path. This isn't law school to the, to the, to the internship at the law right. firm and the job. This is, this is about, this is about writing and having yep. the talent. This is about getting exposure to that talent mm -hmm. and getting in the in the door. And it's hard. We all have limited time to read and, and capacity and, and capacity to read and, and observe and, and understand about these things. But someone along along the way, whether it's a lab or not, they need to find advocacy that gets us to gets them to a lawyer, gets them to a manager, gets yeah. them to an agent who who is willing to take the chance and be their advocate, right? I, I truly have always signed, even at this stage, I can't do it all the time, but I sign new voices. I sign people that have never done anything other than written a great piece of material that I respond to. And I have to respond to the material in order to advocate. I can't, I, you know, I can't fake it. So um, I, I, and CA, we do that. We're not a place that we only sign the people that are, that are showrunners. We don't it want It seems to. that way. Everybody thinks, oh, you know, they're all movie stars, but it's not, it's not true, because I know some of the clients there, that they take a shot. I can speak to the television. We've always 
wanted to sign and do sign new voices. And, but you have to, it's a balance. You have to have established people, people coming up the ranks. But I agree that they need to get in the door. The, the, the training programs that you, you're speaking of, they used to be like a mandate at the end of the course was that you're on a show. You're, you're a staff writer on, on a show. And I signed many clients. My first clients were all, all came through those programs and all were the staff writers on those shows. And that is a good system. And I know many of the companies have those programs, but um, they don't always they don't always have the results that, you know, as, as you're speaking about, they don't always have the results of getting the people to work. Hey, you know what? I haven't asked you anything, Ellen. <laughs> Take it on. I lost the thread. <laughs> okay, this is a really good question, then. This one's for you. Is animation affected as much as live action, giving animation writers are not part of the WGA? Um, you know, there are a lot of, um, and, and Ted knows this also, there are a lot of um, primetime shows that actually do uh, fall under the Writers Guild in animation. Um, so those shows have shut down. But um, generally, the sort of Saturday morning-ish type of programming, kids stuff, um, is um, the Animation Guild, which is the local 839. Um, and those writers are still writing. Many of them, however, um, who are also WGA writers are pencils down. So I feel like with, with respect to this particular strike, the issues are, are very different and the stakes I think are much higher. Um, I think it's an opportunity for animation writers to assert a little bit more um, you know, control over their destiny as relates to the Writers Guild where they've sort of tangentially been invited in but kind of not really. Um, and, um, you know, as I was listening to you talk about um, sort of raising up uh, voices, um, you know, new and interesting voices. I've been in the animation business now for 30 years, and 30 years ago nobody cared about the animation business, in fact. Um, and I, I tell this story often about one of the big agencies, and it wasn't CAA. Um, <laughs> Thank God. It, it, also, it, it also wasn't Endeavor or William Morris, but one of the big agencies, it wasn't. Um, they um, described our business as the sprinkles business. Like, oh. we have a cake. We can bake this cake. We have everything we need here at our big agency, and all the things that we have here will create a a cake, but you're in the sprinkles business. We don't really need sprinkles on our cake. Now, in the meantime, of course, they're in the animation business now because it's a billion-dollar business. Um, you, you'd have to be a complete knucklehead not to be. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I, I think both um, Effie and Ted, what you were saying um, is incredibly valuable. Um, I think that, you know, representatives have to be resources for, um, for new and interesting talent. Um, and we have to find it wherever we can in animation. Um, you know, I think it's, it, it's, it's um, a blend of, you know, film schools and filmmakers, and there are sort of direct paths into being able um, to work in animation. So um, I feel like we have, um, you know, some issues, some bumps with respect to um, the current negotiations going on with the Writers Guild, but we also, um, you know, see that largely around um, higher level um, writers, showrunners, um, you know, feature writers who are also Writers Guild members. We've had a few writers um, who specifically um, went pencils down on features, um, even though they were 839 projects. So it's, an, it's definitely an interesting time. So I'm going to put two questions together. So during the last strike, 
um, I was pointedly asked, well, thank God we don't have to deal with agents anymore because, you know, we have a website now and they're going to get us meetings during staffing season. And frankly, that's better for me, they said, this guy said to me, than an agent. And I've had more, more meetings this, this season than any other season. And I'm going to piggyback that onto how do platforms like YouTube and TikTok affect how creative voices getting exposure for their unique voices and then being found? Ted? No, I, I mean, I'm, I look at that stuff. I look at Instagram constantly. Well, I, I think any, any place you can find content creators is a great resource, right? Comic books, graphic novels, uh, YouTube, TikTok, um, Instagram, funny people, personalities that evolve from these social media platforms. I think as age, agents, we're, we're assigning those kinds of clients because they're, they're resonating. They're getting followers. They're getting attention. They're getting audience. And... and some do will stay in that lane. Some will expand their uh, the range of of, of work, um, but but we always we're always open minded and looking at those things because they're resonating. They're becoming part of popular culture. And if and uh, to Ellen's point about uh, that mysterious agency that didn't pay attention, um, I like sprinkles. I like uh, I want to um, you know I like hot fudge sundays. I like all the stuff on top. The um, Miller's quote. I but, like sprinkles. But the but you have to stay current. You have to stay relevant. You can't just sit there and say, I'm only going to represent the, 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 the most important showrunner. I think Effie had said it. It, it. You have to always be refreshing as an agent, as an agency, as a business, management companies, law firms, all of it. We have to, we have to kind of honor the, the, the system and over, over time find those new voices wherever they come from. I was an agent for 25 years, and I can tell you, any time somebody would go out and get their own work produced, even if it was two or three minutes, right, Ted? It would make the rounds. Right. South, South Park made the rounds. I mean, these, these crazy the Simpsons. guys did Sim it. it was Remember how the Simpsons happened? Yeah. And it, was a, it was an offshoot of the Tracy Ullman show. It was not meant to happen. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's like, boom. And that, that show's been on for a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, so continuing to overwork um, this representation that is so far away and why don't they represent me and see me. I mean, going out and getting it done yourself is a very, very good idea. Always is. What about you, Mark? Yeah, and, and um, I think creatives and writers have that opportunity now, you know, with... Um, whether it's TikTok or YouTube, they can they can show their creativity, you know, to an audience. And uh, as a as a content provider, we'd be mad not to be mining that as a as a as a source of IP or a source of new talents, and then picking up and, and giving them real development opportunities. You know, particularly when it comes to um, full representation of our of our audience. You know, and I suppose um, you know BBC Studios makes for everyone. But we're very lucky that we have a, a, a public service broadcaster as one of our big partners, you know, and their remit is new voices. Right. You know, so we're able to work with them to develop and give new, new voices the, uh, the exposure, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's very gratifying to be able to do that. But it's important commercially as well. You know, if we're going to make content that appeals to a broad audience, we need to be making sure that we represent them in, in the best way, and that's having authentic and original storytellers who can tell the stories that are important to that audience. In the UK, what's considered a new voice? Um, that, that's a good question. I mean, it's, um, I think these days, is it's it someone... Is it an ethnic who, minority? Is it uh, It's broad. Woman? You know, it's about social demographics. As, as, uh, it is about um, gender representation. It's about diversity. Uh, I think more than anything, it's finding those... Uh, authentic, original stories. I mean, a, a good example is, um, you know, you're all going to hear of a, a writer called Nicole Leckie, 
She's just won a, a BAFTA back in, 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 um, in the UK for a show called Mood. You know, Mood has broadcast here on AMC. She's a fantastic piece of talent, you know, uh, and her story is about, it's quite a hard-hitting story. It's, um, it, it's about a young woman trying to make it in the entertainment industry, but it's, it's an authentic story told in a very original way. Uh, so it's, that, for me, is the opportunity for new voices is a story that uh, is told with authenticity and originality. Where is the business going? I don't think we can dig in our heels and just say it's going to be exactly like it is today. You know, I'm burnt out, I'm sick of it, this is what it's going to be like forever. I, don't th I think this is just too big a moment for a lot of people right now. I can't really say where the business is going. Where I'd like it to go is more opportunity. The, but I, I think new platforms, like Roku has become a really interesting platform, right? <laughs> Um, out, out of, you know, they've been around as a box, as a box for a while. They've been around as a, as a, web, uh, as a website for a while. They're now really aggressive in the, inter, in the original content space. And that's exciting. When you have new players that think differently and approach it differently, I think that, that's great. And uh, I think as, as representatives, we always can, we can migrate to the, to the buyers that are, that are uh, aggressive in the space at the, at the moment. So that, that's part of the ecosystem, is, is, is new buyers thinking differently. Uh, and that's, you know, those are big budget, I mean, not big budget, those are, those are 30 minute and 60 minute shows, but short form content is also interesting and those platforms that we talked about and the new ones that will emerge will also be, I think, dramatic places for, uh, for storytellers. Is the strike going to affect or impart or influence the programming and production of international content? I don't see how really, but it's a good question. Everyone looks puzzled, let's go on to the next one. Well, I, think, um, I think the answer is, we don't know. You know, it still feels as though it's evolving. Um, it's, it, it, you know, it feels very early. So, what's the big picture here? Where do we want it to go? Why is everyone out on strike? Not just the technical aspects of the deal, but where do we have a vision for this in six to 12 months? Well, I mean, in six to 12 months, I think this is, a, this is like a pretty easy answer, right? We want the writers who are out on strike to achieve a deal that they feel good about. Um, and we want to get everybody back to work, and we all want to get back to work alongside those um, writers. So I think that that's like the sort of obvious answer. Um, I think, you know, Ted answered the question earlier when he talked about new platforms. Um, you know, I, I have to say, Mark, the stuff that you guys are making is phenomenal. Um, you know, it, it talk about new and interesting voices. I mean, they, the, the BBC has really, really pulled off some incredible programming. So my hat's off to you. That is um, my veiled attempt at greasing the skids to sell more stuff to you also. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I mean, there, so it is sort of a two-pronged question. I mean, I don't know. What do you think, Effie? I, um, here's what I think. In six to 12 months, I think that, and I keep going back to the reckoning, but I also feel that this is an opportunity for people to realize that the system, I'll talk about the Hollywood system, is broken, yeah. right? And I think that what's coming to pass is that the writers are striking. They're like, this is some bullshit. Do you know what I mean? And being like, but a million, like, honey, but watch my thing and I don't get residuals and all of that. I think that they're the first up, right? I'm also, and I think we talked a bit about this and I don't think people realize, but I'm assuming that probably a lot of you are producers here. We don't have a union. We have no one that's saying what our rate should be. We don't have healthcare. We have none of the things. Like I would love when I'm setting up shows 
I never set up a show with the BBC because I'm sure you would treat us fairly. But when you're setting up a show, like, well, you know what I'm treat. I know you'll treat me. I'm gonna call you later, Mark. Um, but when we're setting up these shows, we're lucky. Like the producers will get what 25 grand for like years of work when we have to nurture those writers for years through their scripts. Effie, what does the PGA track. do? Aren't they? But I'm not a. I'm not a. Um, I don't. I can't speak to the PJ. I'm sure there's someone else that is better um, than that. But it is a guild. It is not a union. They are not able to negotiate rates. They are not able to give health care. I know they have like a, some sort of affiliation with health care. But it, we don't, I can't speak to that exactly. I'm sure there's somebody there that would be. I think they're a great organization. But I'm going to go back to the system being broken. And we're saying that like the writers... Thank you for taking, like, stepping out first. I also am hoping that they will do the high five when producers, um, we started a new producers union because these are things that need to be addressed. Like when the pandemic happened, we didn't get anything, right? Do you know what I mean? We were like, we were literally like, oh, there's no one protecting us. We have nothing. Um, so now we're trying to pull that yeah. together. But going back to your original question before I go off on another tangent, um, I think that this is a great opportunity for people to see opportunity and sort of rebuilding the Hollywood system into something that is sustainable, sustainable for writers, sustainable for people who are working in the film industry so that we can continue to make this great content that people want to watch. So that's what I'm hoping for. So there's a question here that, you know, I get a lot. It's like, so I'm a new writer, and how can I get a hold of, you know, these really established... I can't get a hold of the established roots to market. I can't get a hold of, you know, the agents. No, no, this isn't, this isn't for you, Ted. Um, how do you get through as a new voice when all of the requirements that are expected to get a script through are things that only established writers have? Okay, this, is, this drives me crazy. Um, so I saw this movie called Air. How many of you have seen it? Right? So Ben Affleck and uh, Matt Damon are like at Nike and is a big loser organization. They're number three, they're not selling any shoes, they're being completely wiped out by Converse and Adidas. And they, they, wanna, they wanna get a new basketball player to endorse them. And they're looking, it's not so easy how they did it. They look at many, many, many names and finally one of them says, there's this guy, Michael Jordan, and he, you gotta look on the tape to see him, because he's, He's, he's not at the front. He's just a really good player, but you're not going to see him. And they decide to go after him. And I, I only tell this story because, honestly, everything is against them. I really, I really think you should see the movie. I mean, these guys don't know what they're doing. They don't do a good presentation. But they kind of decide they're going to go after Michael George. So they say, no, you're not going to get a hold of him. The mother says, don't come here. I don't want to talk to you. They really don't have the money. They have $250,000 to pay three players. But they are willing to make... The, changes within their organization to give 250,000. I mean, they, ha they have to keep up upping what they're giving. And Michael Jordan's mother, who's played by Viola Davis, she should be negotiating for the writers right now because she's an animal. You know, she just is very cool and smooth and says, this is what it's going to take. $250,000, a red Mercedes, and a piece. They're like, no, we've never done that. I've never heard of that. No, 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 we can't do that. Yeah, we have to go to the board of directors. That's not going to happen. It, like, everyone says it's not going to happen. And I would say this is not dissimilar. You just have to... Now, what's interesting about how they do it is they do a number of different strategies. They have to... They internally have to change as an organization. Nike has to change as an organization. 
You know, they have to make some changes. They can't keep doing the same old bullshit they're doing. And $250,000 isn't going to cut it. And then you have to throw in the red Mercedes. Then you have to negotiate this deal for a back end. No other athlete at that point was getting it. And Michael Jordan, what was, what's, the, what's the position in basketball, Ted, where you're not like the front guy? I think he, I think he was like a guard. He, so it, it's you. really interesting because both sides really, it's not like a big fairy story. I mean, both sides really had to gut it out, make changes, revisit what they were doing, and doing it in a very compressed amount of time. And I think it's pretty inspirational. But I, I would say to the writers, and I would say to both sides, you know, you're going to have to make some serious systemic changes for this thing to move the dial at all. You know, it's not going to be like just making lists of these things that nobody can kind of move, move beyond. Any thoughts? <laughs> well, Red I, I Mercedes like, does I, help close No, no, I, I, I like there. Um, and I do think you have to change the, 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 the mechanism, right? And to what Effie like said, like to what Effie said, it's everybody, but it's, it's the studio executive, it's the network executive, it's the agent, it's the producer, it's the director, it's, it's the showrunner. Everybody allowing the, those new voices to come in. Uh, the, new voices, the new voices have to be passionate, the new voices have to be, be talented in whatever that means to them. They have to do, right, they have to create something that resonates, right? Someone has to respond to it in some way. They have to laugh, they have to cry, they have to be moved in some way by it. That, that whoever's, whoever's looking at that material resonates with and says, hey, I wanna pay it forward. I wanna push this to the next person in, in, in the room to make it. And that, that's what I love doing when you find a voice at whatever level and you say, you know, I wanna share this. I want to hear the story at lunch. What do you read? Every meal, what, every meeting. What are you reading? What what is what are you inspired by? What and that could be an article. That could be that could be a play. That could be a, a screenplay. That could be a, a, an article. You know, a story. A story um, from a book. Anything. Uh, what are you reading? What what are you res what's resonating with you? And that's that. I like to hear it and I like to perpetuate it. And you know, so, Michael Jordan was it? He was front front guard. Point guard. Come on, Pat. <laughs> He was not a big star at that point, but he's made $400 million on that deal. And I'm sure when they penciled it out, they went, holy shit, this is a lot of money out of our pocket, just like both sides are looking at this now. But it's a fundamental change in terms of getting an athlete participation. Well, game changer, literally, for, for Nike and oh for God, him. That's a great name. Yeah, 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 a game changer. Game changer films. No, but I think that's probably what's going to have to happen now, like really pretty big stuff. Uh, I agree with you, it and it can't be one thing. You know, oh, no, it's has, like they had to shift a whole bunch of things down the line. But it line. has to be something that's meaningful and real. You know, it has to be something... Maybe slightly painful. Well, uh, it may be painful, but, you know, I mean, we, we run an apprenticeship scheme, you know, which is designed to Ted's point early. You know, it's no point just having a scheme that runs for a few weeks. It needs to feel meaningful, and there needs to be a job at the end of it. You know, and we also run a writer's group, uh, scheme, we're fortunate enough to uh, have four soaps, you know, that are all year round, and we use that to to give diverse writers the opportunity, you know, to learn their craft, but also, more importantly, to earn earn a living. You know, so it it's it's not enough to be a scheme running for a few weeks. It has there has to be a job, you know, and there has to be a job at, at the end of it. It's organic to the whole thing. That's organic, and they can learn the trade, learn the craft. Uh, and, and more importantly, you know, earn, earn an income. There's a lot of snarly questions here about what the hell is a new voice? Ha! <laughs> Effie, talk one, to me. One what we haven't that? heard before. No. I, I, okay. This is uh -oh. my personal thing. No, I know, right? I'm trying to be quiet. Um, 
I think that people always think of new voices, they're thinking of young, right? And I think that that's a wrong way to go. I think that there's all different types. You know, I mean, I really no, feel, no I mean, especially now in this time that we're in, where people, where there's now a moment of inclusion and people of, of an acceptance, people who have been in different, who are, have a little life experience, you know what I mean? I love, I think that they can also be new voices. And I, you know, and of course there's women, people of color, LGBTQ+, and let's not forget our folks with disability, because I think they get slapped on all the time. Like, the caring stories from those particular point of views that are authentic. And when I say authentic being that, like, they get to actually be the person telling their story because I'm sure as a lot of us know where it's really great to be like oh my god that is a great story that is so but you've never done it before never done it before so we're going to put you at so and so and they're going to be the showrunner we're going to take your idea you know what I mean there's a whole thing where we where that's not necessarily a new voice that's kind of an exploited voice that's sort of with a label on it do you know so new voices to me is someone that's able to be from beginning to the bitter end um, and not always young Ellen what do you have to say well, I mean, I, I, I feel like, you know, anybody who has an original idea that's interesting that goes the distance is, an, is a new voice. So, so, and Ted said this earlier, it could come from a book, it could come from a graphic novel, it could come from, a, you know, a TikTok video, it could come from, I was telling Pat the other day that my daughter posted a picture of her cat on TikTok because, TikTok because every time it heard the Netflix tadam. It would like make this noise and go crazy. And now it's the Netflix cat. They hired the cat. The cat does. You made the a red deal carpet. for the cat. You made, yeah, made a deal for the cat. Um, does that a new make voice. my daughter an original voice? In her mind, it does because she's like, "Do I have to commission you on this?" Um, but you know, I mean, it's anybody who has you know a story that they want to tell. I think, and um, you know, authors. Um, um, Weird, funny, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we work with um, a writer who, um, who used to run the Source magazine, Selwyn Hines, who is a novelist and, um, and is an extraordinary writer and um, a journalist. He writes for the New York Times and um, he writes music and he's a DJ and he's, and, um, and, but you know, he, he went through all, in fact, we represent him with, um, with CAA. He went through all of the, um, not the Sprinkles agency. He went through all of the, you know, all of the steps that he had to go to, but, you know, now he's running a show that we're actually producing that, um, you know, uh, it's just, it's a, um, you know, I think it's, it's a, there's no doubt that it's a difficult business. I think that, and, and this is sort of, I think gone from like the state of the scripted business to how do you get into the scripted business, yeah. um, and I think it, it you know it, it it requires work. It's not just you know it, it, I think we all want to rally around our ideas. That the hope is that everyone else is going to do that too. Um, and so even if something does go the distance and it ends up on the air, that doesn't mean that it will find an audience. Um, so I think that that's something else that we need to look at is how are, um, how are these distribution platforms yeah. um, driving traffic to these new shows that were created by these new and authentic and interesting and unique voices. Um, anyway, it's sort of unraveling into you know, a whole other panel if everybody wants to hang around. 
So I want to thank like everybody clock, on my the panel. Clock I, keeps I, have, resetting. I, I have a red dot. It keep, but it keeps resetting. It's, it's interesting. Vibrating. So I want to thank Ted Miller and Effie Brown and Ellen Goldsmith Vane and our friend Mark Lindsay for being on the panel. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you. Thanks, Pat. Thank you. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest news and views from the international TV business by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.